Hi, good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 4. If you're new with us this morning or if it's been a while since you've been with us, we are in the middle of a series in the book of Acts. The reason why we take books of the Bible and preach through them verse by verse is we want the Word of God to set the agenda. The last thing you need is another opinion. What we need is the Word of God desperately. So this morning we're in Acts chapter 4. I know Jim just prayed, but let me pray here and ask that God would help us now as we transition to His Word. Father, it is our prayer and our hope this morning that you would speak to us through your word. In fact, we have an expectation that you will do so because we know that every time we open your word, it does not return void, but accomplishes all that you desire and achieves the purpose for which you sent it. So we have a great expectation this morning that what we're about to do can transform the people in this room because we know that it's not us, but it's you who's at work through the preaching of your word. And so, Lord, we're praying that you would use your word powerfully this morning to transform us and to make us more like your son, Jesus. Oh, Lord, would you speak to us through your word? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So a few years back, author and church leadership consultant Tom Rayner conducted a brief survey on social media regarding church business meetings. Rayner wanted to know about church business meetings that were positive in nature, but he was also curious about church business meetings that had gone wrong. In particular, he posed the question about what types of things that churches argue about at church business meetings. And the responses he got from that question were amazing. There were some pretty standard arguments. Apparently, a lot of churches argue about the temperature in the worship center and the color of carpet, the order of worship, the color of walls, and what types of donuts to have during fellowship time. But then there were arguments that were a bit more unique in nature. One church got into a heated argument about what types of green beans the church should serve. I'll be honest, I didn't even know there were multiple green beans until this week, but apparently some churches are arguing about this. Another church had a multi-hour business meeting on what type of lawnmower blades to purchase. Still another church had a business meeting that started at 7 p.m., and when the meeting was not finished by midnight, they were forced to resume the meeting the next day. The point of contention in this case, what types of wheels to put on a people mover, which I guess is a 12 or 15 passenger van. They couldn't decide, standard or chrome. And perhaps my favorite, one church got into an extended theological argument about whether the church should allow deviled eggs at church potlucks, because, you know, the devil. Needless to say, churches can argue about a lot of dumb things. I think it's safe to say that when you're arguing about green beans and lawnmower blades and deviled eggs, you probably lost sight of what's most important. Here's the thing, while it's easy for us to stand on the outside and say, how could you argue about those types of things? The reality is that it's easy for all of us, every church, including this one, to be distracted. All of us have a tendency to forget what's most important. I think that's one of the huge reasons why gathering together on Sunday mornings is so important, and it's so important that we open the Word of God together, because the Word of God recenters us and reminds us what's really important. It helps us to keep matters of first importance of first importance, and it keeps us from being distracted by things that are just dumb. To that end, I think today's passage is extraordinarily helpful. The main point of Acts 4, 1 to 22, I would contend, is that Jesus is risen. He's alive, and he is still at work. Now, I suppose that may seem to you like a fairly elementary statement in terms of Christian doctrine. And it is. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, no doubt, is a basic building block of the Christian faith. But here's the thing, because we have a tendency to overlook the basic building blocks of our Christianity and get distracted by all kinds of weird stuff like lawnmower blades and deviled eggs, we desperately need passages like the one we're about to look at today. 
We need to be reminded, first and foremost, Jesus is alive. He's risen from the dead, and he's still at work through his spirit and his people. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not something that we set aside so we can deal with more important issues like the color of the carpet. No, it's something that we must constantly keep on the forefront of our minds because it is foundational to our Christian faith. If Jesus is dead, then our faith is dead. If he did not raise from the dead, then we are futile in our faith and we are stuck in our sins. But if Jesus rose from the dead and if he's alive, then our faith is not futile and our labor in the Lord is not in vain. And so the simple reality I want to remind you of this morning is this. Jesus is alive. He rose from the dead and he is still at work. That's not something we move past or we move beyond. That's a reality that should shape and transform us every day, including today. And the book of Acts is good at reminding us of this important event over and over and over again. In the book of Acts, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is constantly on center stage because the apostles understood that indeed the resurrection is not something we move beyond, but it's something that's essential to our Christian faith. And today's passage reminds us of that reality. In Acts 4, 1 to 22, we are reminded Jesus is alive and he is still at work in his people. And so my prayer this morning is that we would remember what's most important, that Jesus is alive, that he's still at work, and we would no longer be distracted by all kinds of crazy stuff. So Acts 4, verses 1 to 22, it's a bit of a longer passage, so I won't ask you to stand this morning, but I will ask you to remember that this is the word of God as we read it. Now, we've had some troubles with our slides, so there won't be words on the screen, but you can listen or you can look along in your own Bibles. There's some pew Bibles located underneath your chair, most likely, if you want to look there or if you want to read along on your phone. Whatever the case is, Acts 4, verses 1 to 22 is our passage this morning. Again, I will remind you, this is the word of God. It says this, starting in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. <coughs> Excuse me. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized they'd been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed throughout them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. When they further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. It's the word of God. 
So a little bit of context here for Acts chapter 4. In Acts 3, verses 1 to 10, the passage that we looked at last week, Peter healed a lame man. And then in Acts 3, 11 to 26, which we also looked at last week, Peter takes the healing of the lame man as an occasion to then launch into a speech about the centrality and supremacy of Jesus Christ. In that speech, Peter mentioned that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. He's the means by which refreshment and salvation can be found. And notably for our passage today, he is the resurrected Savior. It's that message about Jesus being resurrected that gets Peter and John in trouble in this passage. Look at the way the passage starts in verses 1 to 3. Verse 1, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So the religious leaders are annoyed, because Peter and John are teaching as those who have authority. But more specifically, they seem to be very annoyed or troubled or bothered that Peter and John are preaching the resurrection of the Christ and the resurrection of the dead. Now, in the book of Acts, this won't be the last time that the resurrection becomes a point of contention. Despite the objections of many religious leaders, the early apostles consistently taught about the importance of the resurrection. Now, we may relegate the resurrection to Easter Sunday, but the apostles understood that everything rises and falls with the resurrection. If Jesus rose from the dead, then Jesus is who he said he is, Christ and Lord. If he didn't raise from the dead, he's just another guy. But without question, the disciples were convinced Jesus was alive. They saw him in his resurrected state. They spoke with him. They ate with him. They walked with him. They were thoroughly convinced that Jesus was risen, and they were unafraid to proclaim this. And this proclamation of the resurrection is what gets them in trouble in Acts 4. The religious leaders, and in particular the Sadducees, were greatly annoyed and disturbed about the teaching of the resurrection. Now the Sadducees, as you may know, were an exceptionally powerful sect within Judaism. They often held the most powerful positions in the religious council. They were known to be materialistic and very power-hungry. They would often cozy up to Rome to make sure that they had power. And significantly, and this is maybe how you can remember who the Sadducees are, they denied the resurrection. That's why they're Sadducees. They denied the resurrection. They believed that the soul died with the body. And so the religious leaders, and particularly the powerful Sadducees, weren't just annoyed that the disciples were teaching Jesus as the Christ. They were specifically annoyed that the disciples were teaching that Jesus was the risen Christ. Since the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection, this was a point of contention. And Peter and John knew this. They knew that preaching the resurrected Christ was not going to win them friends. And yet, in this passage, they doubled down. They're arrested because they're proclaiming a resurrected Christ. And then when confronted, what do they do? They proclaim a resurrected Christ. In fact, look at verses 8 to 10. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what, man's this man, what, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Listen, Peter and John are no dummies. They know that the Sadducees are the most influential leaders of the day. They know the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. They also know, Peter and John do, that part of the reason they've been arrested is because they're proclaiming the resurrection. And yet they go out of their way here in verses 8 to 10 when confronted to emphasize again the resurrection. As Peter puts it in verse 10, let it be known to all of you 
and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this man is standing before you well. That's a pretty bold proclamation by Peter. He's been arrested for teaching about the resurrection. He's been arrested for teaching about Jesus. And what does Peter do? He doubles down and tells the religious leaders, the reason this lame man is healed is because of Jesus. The Jesus that you put to death, but God raised from the dead. That Jesus, the resurrected one, is the one who healed this man. And in that bold statement of verse 10, we are reminded, I think, of what is the main point of this passage and also one of the central tenets of Christianity. Jesus is risen and he is still at work. In fact, it's the ongoing work of the resurrected Christ that I want us to think about together in our time this morning. It's not just that Jesus rose from the dead. It's that he's still at work through his spirit and his people. And in this passage, I think we see the ongoing work of the resurrected Christ in multiple ways. I want you to notice first that the resurrected Christ saves the lost. Jesus saves the lost. Now to be sure, a lame man is at the center of this story. A lame man was healed, and Peter gave a speech, and because of that, they're arrested. But the healing was pointing beyond just the healing itself. It was pointing to something greater. As we're told in verse 22, the man was more than 40 years old when he was healed. By the way, just a side note here, Luke in his commentary seems to be suggesting that if he's over 40, he must be really old, which is hard for someone in my category to accept. Yet, the point is, he's so old, he couldn't have grown out of this on his own. He couldn't have just grown up out of it. He was more than 40, really old. Now, he got up and walked because Jesus healed him, which is the point that Peter explicitly makes in verse 10. And then he goes on to make the point, I think, that the physical healing was pointing beyond just the physical healing itself. In fact, look at verses 10 to 12 and, and watch how Peter argues here. Verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Now here's where he starts to point beyond the healing. Verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So in verse 11, Peter quotes from Psalm 118.22, which we read earlier, and saying that Jesus is the stone that was rejected by the builders, but he's now become the cornerstone. And then in verse 12, Peter utters one of the most famous statements in the book of Acts, indeed, one of the most famous statements in all of the Bible. He says, there is no other name, no other name, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Clearly, in that statement, Peter's not talking about physical salvation here. He's talking about salvation in its fullest and most spiritual sense. Only by the name of Jesus Christ can any of us be saved from our sin and have peace with God and everlasting life. The physical healing of the lame man pointed to a greater reality, that Christ alone rescues from sin. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he saves anyone who comes to him in desperate faith. In other words, what we're saying is this, Jesus is not dead and no longer capable of rescuing anyone. Rather, he's alive and he's very much still in the business of rescuing lost sinners like you and me. But he doesn't just save the lost, he also does an ongoing work in those who've been saved. Which brings us to the second way we see the, work of the, ongo or the ongoing work of the Savior in this passage. Not only does Jesus save the lost, but he also transforms his people. He transforms his people. One of my favorite verses in the book of Acts is verse 13. Love verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. 
And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So when they see the boldness of Peter and John and their courage, they take note. They haven't been formally trained. They didn't go to rabbinical school. They weren't religious leaders. Rather, they are common, uneducated men. This is astonishing to them. But they take note that they had been with Jesus. I think this is a testament to the ongoing work of Jesus transforming his people. Now, to be sure, the disciples immensely benefited from sitting under the teaching of Jesus for years. But prior to his resurrection in the Pentecost event, the disciples were still scared and lacked boldness. But here in Acts 4, their boldness is off the charts, and it can be attributed to one thing, the ongoing work of Christ through the Spirit. The Spirit was helping them to see and remember the truths that Jesus had taught. The Spirit was giving them boldness and courage to speak and proclaim the resurrection of Christ. The disciples had been with Jesus, and the Spirit was now empowering them. They were being transformed by Jesus through the Spirit. This is what Jesus does. He transforms them. He transforms his people and makes them into his image. And he also gives them courage, which brings us to the third way we see the ongoing work of the resurrected Savior in this passage. Thirdly, Jesus emboldens his witnesses. Verses 18 to 20. Verse 18 So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. And the courage that Peter and John display here in verses 18 to 20 is astounding. The same religious leaders that just put Jesus to death are now warning the apostles, stop talking about Jesus. Given how it ended for Jesus, you had to know. The apostles knew this was no idle threat. And yet in verses 19 and 20, they boldly and courageously hold their ground saying, Judge for yourselves whether it's right for us to obey you or God. But as for us, we cannot help but speak of what we've seen and heard. That is an incredibly courageous and bold statement. And it's even more incredible if you remember how scared the disciples were at the end of Jesus' life. Peter even went so far as to deny Jesus three times. So what changed? What changed is that Jesus empowered his witnesses through the Holy Spirit. In fact, we see a hint of this in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and then he launches into the speech. It's when he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter and John aren't bold because they suddenly just developed a backbone. No, they're bold because Jesus is empowering them through the Holy Spirit, which is exactly what Jesus promised he would do in Acts 1.8. So what we're saying then is this. Jesus is alive and he is active. He saves the lost. He transforms his people. He empowers his witnesses. He rose from the dead and he's still at work. But the question for us this morning, I think, is this. Do we see him at work in our lives? If Jesus is alive, if he's risen from the dead, then it only follows that he will be active in our lives as well if we are trying to follow him. In other words, what I'm saying is this. Acts 4 is not merely an historical document in which we learn, oh, this is how Jesus worked in the past. Now, what we're seeing here is a reminder of how Jesus is at work today. That Jesus still saves the lost. That Jesus still transforms his people. And Jesus still empowers his witnesses. And so in light of that, I think there are three questions for us to ask this morning by way of application. And they correspond to each of those three things I just mentioned. So the first application question, I think, is simply this. Have you experienced the salvation of Jesus Christ? Have you experienced the salvation of Jesus Christ? When it comes to Acts 4.12, there is no wiggle room. Salvation is found in no one else. 
There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only because of Christ's substitutionary death on the cross could any of our sins be forgiven. Only because Christ's righteousness is imputed to his people could any of us stand before a holy God. Only because of the resurrection of Christ could any of us have the hope of everlasting life. And only because of Christ's ascension into heaven and his distribution of the Holy Spirit could any of us have the power to walk in newness of life. In other words, what we're saying is this, salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. There is no other name. Not Buddha, not Gandhi, not Mohammed, not Joseph Smith, not you, not me, not anyone else. Only Jesus. That may sound exclusive to you because it is. Only in Christ can you be saved. But while the gospel is exclusive, the offer of the gospel is inclusive. And that anyone who responds to the good news in saving faith can be rescued. Which begs the question this morning, have you, I'm not talking about someone else, I'm asking you, have you responded to the good news of Jesus Christ? I think sometimes there's a tendency to assume that just because a person attends church, that means they're a Christian. But that would be like assuming that just because you're in an operating room, you're a surgeon. Or just because you're on an airplane, you're a pilot. Now granted, surgeons work in operating rooms, pilots fly planes, and Christians attend church. But coming to church doesn't mean you're a Christian any more than being in an operating room means you're a surgeon. Salvation is not found in church attendance. It's not what it says here. Salvation is not found in being a good person. Salvation is found in the name of Jesus Christ. And so the question I'm asking you this morning is not, are you a church attender? I'm not asking you either. Are you a good person? The question is, have you turned to Jesus Christ in saving faith? That's the question. I was talking to someone recently, grown up in church, and yet despite years of church attendance, they didn't know Jesus. It wasn't until God opened their eyes to realize they were a sinner, and that Christ alone could rescue them from their sin, that they finally experienced salvation. I can relate to that story because that's my story too. I grew up going to church. I was a pretty good person, but I didn't know Jesus either. I never experienced the salvation that's freely offered in the gospel. Instead, I was trusting it in myself. I was trusting in my own good works. If someone would have asked me, why would you go to heaven? My response would have been, I'm a pretty good person. Listen, maybe that's your story this morning. Maybe you've grown up going to church. Maybe you've grown up going to this church. but You've never actually turned to Jesus in saving faith. Maybe you know all of the right Sunday school answers. Maybe you know that when the teacher asks, you should always try first Jesus. But God's never changed your heart. Maybe you know about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. If that's you, and in a group this size, I'm assuming there are many who would actually fall in that category. Let me plead with you this morning to turn to Jesus Christ in saving faith. Because Acts 4.12 says, salvation is found nowhere else. I don't assume that just because you're here today, that means you've experienced the salvation of Christ. And you shouldn't make that assumption either. It's worth asking the question, have you experienced the salvation of Jesus Christ. Have you turned to him in saving faith? If not, make today the day. If so, I think there's another application question. Have you turned to Jesus Christ? And secondly, are you being transformed on a daily basis by Jesus? Now to be clear, being transformed by Jesus is not the same thing as being successful in the eyes of the world. And that's important to note because the pressure to be successful in the eyes of the world is immense. We live in a world that emphasizes resumes 
and accomplishments and achievements. We don't care if the football coach is doing things the right way and developing players in the long run. We want results now. We want wins. We don't care if the CEO has good ideas and a hearty work ethic and a strong moral character. We just want the company to make money. We don't care if an aspiring politician has a moral backbone and a genuine desire to serve others. We just want to know, can they produce results? Resumes, accomplishments, results mean everything to us. And sadly, the Christian subculture is often no different. I've been listening to a podcast recently warning about the dangers of Christian celebrity culture. Believe it or not, that exists. In which pastors and church leaders are exalted for their gifts and achievements. It's pretty obvious in listening to this podcast that if a pastor is gifted enough in communication, and if they get enough likes on social media, and if they can attract a big enough crowd on Sunday morning, then there are plenty of people who will gladly overlook their character and defects and flaws, even if those defects and flaws would actually disqualify them biblically from the office of elder. And in that way, the Christian subculture is no different than the world. It's about results and accomplishments and resumes. It's about money and numbers and achievements. But hear this, that is not the way of Christ. What separates Peter and John is not their resume or their accomplishments. What separates Peter and John is that they had been with Jesus. Again, verse 13, love verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized they had been with Jesus. Peter and John were not the types of guys whose resumes would jump to the top of the pile. You wouldn't sort through the resumes and say, oh, that's impressive. No, they were common, uneducated men. What made them different, though, is they had been with Jesus, and they'd been transformed by Jesus. The most important thing about them was not their resume or their accomplishments. It was their proximity to Christ. And friends, the same is true for you. It may feel to you like you need to impress people with your athletic or academic achievements, or it may feel to you that you need to do something of note in your professional career. Or that you need to have a certain amount of material possessions or a certain amount of money in your bank account. Or that you need a certain educational degree to give you credibility. That's not true. The most important thing about you is your proximity to Christ. Are you walking daily with Jesus? And in the process, are you being transformed by Christ? A long time ago, when we lived in Amarillo, Texas, there was a woman in our church that we affectionately referred to as Miss Terry. I didn't know much about Miss Terry's family. I didn't know much about Miss Terry's family. I didn't know how old she even was. I would guess she was maybe in her early 60s. But what I did know about Miss Terry is she exuded joy. She constantly had a smile on her face and just seemed that joy was oozing out of her. And I think the reason for that was pretty clear. She spent time with Jesus. In fact, one year she went with us on a youth camp uh, we went to summer camp with our youth, and she went with us as a sponsor. And one of the other sponsors heard her every morning at 5 a.m. talking to someone for an hour. And the whole week she just assumed, oh, she just calls her husband every morning at 5 a.m. That's weird, but that's great. They have an hour-long conversation. Later on, she realized, actually, every morning she was waking up, and she was praying in the next room for an hour. And she was conversing with Jesus as if she was just talking with her husband. That's the reason why Miss Terry exuded joy, because she was with Jesus, She'd been with Jesus, and being with Jesus transformed her. Now, my question for you this morning is, is that true of you? Have you been with Jesus enough that he's doing a transforming work in your life? Do you converse with him in prayer as if he's a spouse or a friend or a parent? 
If you were to walk into an Acts 4 situation, would the crowds take note of you? Oh, well, they've been with Jesus. That's obvious. Or instead, if you were to walk in that situation, would you be quick to trumpet your own accomplishments and resume? I think a lot of us are consumed with a desire to be known and appreciated by the world. But it's far better to be transformed by Jesus than known by the world. The world may exalt musicians, athletes, entertainers, CEOs, but it's the Miss Terry's, it's the Peters and Johns that turn the world upside down. The most important thing about you is not your resume, your accomplishments. It's whether you've been with Christ. Are you being transformed by Jesus? Because you're spending time with Jesus. I think that's one of the questions that this passage forces us to ask. I think there's a third application question. Excuse me. Are you boldly following God and sharing the good news with others? Now, there's a really fascinating contrast in this passage between the religious leaders and the apostles. On the one hand, the religious leaders are clearly motivated by desire to maintain their power and to keep their influence. In fact, look at what happens in verses 13 to 18. We've already read verse 13 several times, but then verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they, this is religious leaders, had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed throughout them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now here's what's fascinating about verses 13 to 18. At no point do the religious leaders question the validity of the man's healing. In fact, at no point do they question the validity of the resurrection of Christ. They seem to be far more concerned in verses 13 to 18 with what the people think rather than with what actually happened. In fact, this motive of being motivated by a desire to please people is confirmed in verses 21 and 22. Verse 21, And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The religious leaders were primarily concerned with one thing, keeping the favor of the people. They liked their power and did not want to lose it. This is the exact opposite of Peter and John. The religious leaders are motivated by desire to appease the people, but look at Peter and John in verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. Listen, Peter and John are fully aware that contradicting the orders of the religious leaders will likely come with consequences, but they do not care because they wanted to please God rather than obey men. And so you have this unbelievable contrast in Acts 4. On the one hand, you have the religious leaders, the people who have been charged with leading others into the presence of God. And yet these religious leaders are more concerned with pleasing people than God. On the other hand, you have these common, uneducated men who do not have a position of power or an official position of leadership, and yet they are far more concerned with pleasing God than man. Do you see the irony in that? The religious leaders want to keep their power and please man. But these unknown men, these uneducated men, these common men are committed to obeying God rather than obeying men. Now the question for us to ask this morning is simply this. Which of those two opposing camps do you fall into? 
Are you in the camp of the religious leaders trying to keep your power and your influence, trying to please men? Or are you in the camp of Peter and John, obeying God even if it costs you greatly? Now here's the trick in asking that question. I think all of us like to think that we are more like Peter and John than the religious leaders. But in reality, that's much easier said than done. Because the truth is, living for the praise of men and living so as to keep your power and influence is a major temptation for every one of us in this room. For example, I would like to think that I'm like Peter and John, that I'm more committed to obeying God rather than I am trying to earn the favor of men. And yet, I often fail to speak of Christ to my neighbors and my friends. Because if I'm honest, I want them to like me. I don't want them to think that I'm weird. In other words, I'm motivated with the same motivation of the religious leaders. I want people to think well of me. Listen, the temptation to bend or ignore truth in order to accommodate the crowds is real. Whether it be the temptation to keep our mouths closed about the good news of Christ with our neighbors and friends, or the temptation to bend the teaching of God's word in order to get a few more likes on social media, or the temptation to abandon the hard teachings of Scripture because we don't want to seem out of step culturally or backwards. That temptation is real. But what we need to remember this morning is that God empowers His witnesses and gives them courage. Again, to be clear, Peter and John were not exceptionally courageous men. Again, if we were to go to the end of the Gospels, we'd realize Peter is a cowering wimp denying Jesus. And yet here in Acts 4, he's essentially willing to sign his death warrant rather than disobey God. Why? Because the Spirit was empowering him. As promised, Jesus had given the Spirit, and now the Spirit is giving him courage. And what I'm reminding you of this morning is this. That same Spirit dwells in you if you are a follower of Christ. And because that's the case, we don't need to adopt a defeatist mindset or accept a posture of defeat and just give in to the crowds. Listen, the temptation to go the route of the religious leaders will always be there. But if we have the Spirit, we don't have to go that route. By the grace of God, we now have the ability to stand firm and be courageous. But the question is, will we rely on the Spirit of the power or, or the power of the Spirit, or will we rely on our own power? I think part of my problem is that I often think about sharing with my neighbors as if it's an apologetics issue or an evangelistic strategy issue. In other words, if I just had the right arguments, apologetics, then I could win them to Christ. Or if I just brought up the issue in the right way, evangelistic strategy, they'd be more willing to listen. But approaching the problem in that way is missing the obvious solution. The obvious solution is to depend on the Holy Spirit and ask God to give me wisdom and courage. And to neglect that solution is just foolish. Think about it this way. If you went out to start your car in the morning and the car wouldn't turn over, I would hope your first solution would not be, well, let's just take the engine out of the car and start tinkering around. I would hope your first solution would be, let's check the battery. Or let's make sure there's gas. Do we have a power source? That's the starting place. In the same way, if you're trying to be more bold for Christ, don't pull the spiritual equivalent of taking your engine out of the car first by running to apologetics and evangelistic strategy. Instead, check the power source. Are you connected to the Spirit? Are you relying on the Spirit? In the book of Acts, it's clear. The church regularly and frequently and fervently prayed. It's no wonder then that they were so bold. They were connected to the power source. There was some gas in the tank. And so the question for us is, are we relying on the Holy Spirit? 
Now, the good news for us is this. Jesus is still in the business of empowering his witnesses to testify to his goodness and obey his commands. But the question is, will we rely on that power? Or will we try to do it on our own? Are we boldly following God and sharing the good news of Christ with others because we are walking in step with the Spirit? Listen, as evidenced by arguments about lawnmower blades and donuts, it's easy for churches to get off track. But what I want to encourage us this morning is, let's not lose sight of what matters most. Jesus rose from the dead, and he is alive. And he is still at work. He still saves the lost. He still transforms his people. He still empowers his witnesses. And the challenge for us this morning is to live like that's actually true. To run to Christ for salvation. To spend time with Jesus so, to be, so as to be transformed by him. And to rely on his power so that we might boldly follow him and make his name known. Jesus is alive. And church, the challenge for us is, let's live like that's actually true. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the reminder here in Acts 4 that Jesus is alive. And we pray that we would live like we believe that to be true. Father, if there are some in this room this morning who do not know you, and never experienced the salvation of Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Maybe there's a kid in this room who all of his life has grown up hearing about Jesus and yet has never turned to Christ. I pray today would be the day of salvation. Maybe there's an adult that would fall in that category. They've gone to church a thousand times, and yet they don't know you. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, I pray that we would be motivated, if we are followers of you, to be transformed to spend time with you so that you might make us into your image. And I pray that we would have the wisdom to rely on your spirit so that we could boldly proclaim the good news to people around us. Oh Lord, help us to live today like Jesus is alive because we know that he is. And help us to live accordingly, knowing that living in light of his resurrection is the best thing we could do. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. All right, our benediction today is going to be from the book of Numbers. Chapter 6, it's actually a blessing that Aaron gives to the people. and says this, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Have a good week. Thanks for coming.